Micah chapter 1. <clears throat> Get to the book of Jonah. Then it's the next one. Micah chapter 1. I'm just going to read uh, a very small number of verses here at the start of this book. I got chapter 1 and the words of verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the more Rashite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For, behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places in the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And why are the high places of Judah? What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field, and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. Amen. Just ending with words of verse 6. Um, I know the Lord himself will add his own blessing upon it. Maybe that you attend to steer clear or steer away from what are called the minor prophets. Apart from Jonah, I suppose the rest of them would not be generally known in any great measure or extent. Apart from maybe a verse or two that you've heard preached upon, that might be the case with many in Christendom today. There are wee books that, well, we'll just skip over. We'll get into the New Testament as quick as we can. Maybe that's not the case with you. I trust it's not. Well, this is probably so with Micah. Writing in the closing years of the 8th century before Christ, the question might be asked, what relevance has he to do with us today? But as you look at him, you soon will realize that there are many parallels with his situation, his circumstances, and with ours. In Micah's day, Judah had abandoned its religious heritage. While those uh, had an outward appearance of worshipping the Lord, yet Micah understood that it's the Lord that looks at, looketh upon the heart. And the fruits in society were less than encouraging. Violence was a normal. The passerby wasn't safe. Justice was perverted. The very family life was distorted. You look at chapter 7. Just look at verse 5 and 6. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, 
The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. The family unit is broken down. Deception was prevalent. And to cap it all, the religious leaders of that day no longer spoke the truth. Pagan practices had now become dominant. And the reality of all of this was the judgment of the Lord was upon them. And that's what Micah brings out. He speaks as one who knows what the outcome of their behavior will be. And yet using Samaria and its destruction as an example, he hopes that his words will be a warning to Jerusalem and to the nations at large. And I want us just to take a wee look at the opening verses here of the book of Micah. It may give us an appetite to go further. I want you to notice his introduction. Some may pass over the words of introduction very quickly so as to get to the main body of the message. That would be a mistake. It would be a mistake with any of these books, not least that of Micah. Because there's so much in verse 1. He had been preaching for some years now before the Holy Spirit guides him to write these words. Moved upon by the Spirit of God as Peter records in his epistle. And what he writes in verse 1 gives us some points to consider and to help us to appreciate and to understand what follows. No more so than the opening words. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Michael the Morishite. That's noted in other prophets as well. You turn back to Jonah chapter 1. You'll see it there. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai. Saying. It's the word of the Lord. Jeremiah just to give you one other example. Verse 2 of chapter 1. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon the king of Judah. In the thirteenth year of his reign. It's the word of the Lord. Don't let the number of times that is used deflect you from the importance of what has been said here. The message that follows in this book and as in those other books is not being attributed to a man. It's a word that came to him. It's a message that was divinely revealed. He saw it. In some cases we read of visions in Isaiah, for example. Well, here's a message that Micah saw or it was revealed unto him. And he then in his preaching or his writing, he was to relay that message that he had been entrusted by the Lord. And he was to get, deliver it unto the people. You'll notice in verse 1 in those words that the name of the Lord is in capitals in the authorized version denoting Jehovah. That personal name of the covenant God. He's speaking to this people. And Micah was simply the herald proclaiming the message. That's what I desire to be, men and women. That's I'm sure what you desire to be. Just a conduit. Through which God can use. And God can speak to his people. And to others. Yet in their sin. And you'll note in that verse 1 also identified as the divine messenger. He's noted as Micah the Morishite. The name Micah is a tremendous lovely name. Who is like unto the Lord? Or who is like the Lord? 
It's a familiar name. In those days, it would have been a common name in many, in many respects. There is another one, uh, maybe more familiar to us than this one we're looking at, and that you'll find in 1 Kings 22 and verse 8. It's that time where Ahab and Jehoshaphat are sitting together. Jehoshaphat shouldn't have been there. He's compromising. Jehoshaphat knew the Lord. Ahab was a wicked king. But Ahab uh, tries to uh, forge a, an alliance that he might go to battle against even those that were his enemies. And Jehoshaphat, he asks, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of? First Kings 22 and 8. King of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man, Micaiah. There's the same name, Micah, only lengthened out, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. By whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. For he doth not prophesy good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. He just didn't tickle his ears. He just didn't say what he wanted to hear. He spoke the truth. And there's a Micah. But also was a faithful prophet. I'm sure that you've read it before about in the days of Elijah. It's interesting to hear that Micah isn't introduced to us in the usual manner by describing, his, by describing him as the son of his father. There might be good reason for that. Instead it tells us that he came from the Judean country town of Morasheth. Morasheth, there is at least one, was halfway between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean. You look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Morasheth Gath, the houses of Akzib shall be to lie to the kings of Israel. That's probably that he came from that time. He's described as Micah the Morashite. He's from that time. But because his ministry took him all over the country, he would have been used to using this description to introduce himself to the congregation, to the people that he spoke to, especially, uh, no doubt, in the city of Jerusalem. Much of his ministry was concentrated in Jerusalem, and it was to take place there. And I want you to understand, I want you to, under, uh, uh, to, to know it, that he was remembered a hundred years later. You see, if you come to Jeremiah chapter 26, chapter 26 of verse, in verse 17, it says, Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morishite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem shall have heaps. And the mountain of the house is the high place of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. He's remembered. Jeremiah comes later on of course. Micah's ministry is now gone. It's over. He's with the Lord. But the people remember him a hundred years later. I wonder... Well, the people remember us. They remember the message that he spoke. They remember the sort of man and prophet that he was. 
His ministry, if I might say, was blessed in his own day. And being so in the time of King Hezekiah, we might conclude that it had a bearing on the reform that occurred under King Hezekiah. We do not know how or where God called him to be a prophet or even precisely where he delivered his messages. And there's good reason for that. We are not to be taken up with a man. We're not to be taken up with his personal circumstances. What matters is that he is the one through whom the Lord spoke and still does speak. Because the book of Micah is still in your Bible and in mine. And it's part of the inspiration of God's calendar. The third thing you'll notice in this verse, just in case you were tempted to run over it quickly, we've only got to the third thing. He lived and he ministered in the time of crisis. And that we know because of those whose reigns are mentioned in the words of verse 1. He's making the marsh shite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Historically, we can place the message of Micah in the very time frame. And men and women, it helps us to understand what God was saying to this people. But more importantly, when we see similar occurrences or circumstances in Micah's day to our own day, then it allows us to work out what God's message is to us now. Because you see, his attitude to man's behavior, his remedy for man's situation and sin, has not and will not change. It's still the same. We must apply the word of God to our own day, to our own time, to our own hearts. And it may be that we will respond in time to the warnings that God's word still conveys to us. The reign of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah were years which saw the collapse of political strength and power. That political power had been built up. Now there's a collapse. It was also during their time that the weaker and neighboring nations with their friendly attitude towards one another enabled them to extend their borders and their territory so that together they ruled almost all of the area that David and Solomon had controlled at the very height of Israel's influence. The enemy had come in. But by the time that Micah is on the scene, things have changed. The northern king, kingdom had been likened. You remember how the kingdom was divided after David? And the northern part of Israel was known as Israel, and the southern part was known as Judah. And in Micah's day, that northern part had been weakened by internal dissension after Jeroboam's death. And he came under the control of the Assyrians, culminating in the destruction of its capital, which is called Samaria. Judah had been spared from that same outcome. Why? Because Ahaz the king had given in to the Assyrians. He was content to pay a substantial tribute to them every year. And Hezekiah, for the first part of his reign, made no move to break with that policy. He did, however, try to sort out initial problems in his kingdom. 
But not just a period of political upheaval, but then there was also the economic and social revolution. The wealth attained had not been spread evenly, so the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Traditional life was undermined. And as a result, it created many social problems. This was also a time of the erosion of the standards in religious life. Idolatry was openly encouraged by Ahaz and those who claimed to worship God were content with just the external aspects of worship without a heart engagement. That's the day that Micah ministered in. Political upheaval. Economic revolution and social disorder. Religious apostasy. Is it not relevant to our day? Micah was commissioned by the Lord to expose those things, particularly to expose of how the people were content just with the external, yet their heart was not with the Lord. He was commissioned to call for them to return to the standards of God's covenant that laid down. The fourth thing in this verse, one, is the mention of the two capital cities. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Marshite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. He mentions those two places rather than the kingdoms of Israel and Judah because maybe his perception was that declining standards had spread out from these very centers into the rest of the land. You take a look at what the capital city is and it's really what you'll find in the rest of the countryside. There's a drug problem in Belfast. You can be sure there's a drug problem in Market Hill there's immorality in Belfast, you can be sure it'll be found in Derry, or London Derry. Depends where you were this week. Or Bally Castle or wherever. And Micah must have perceived that this is where it stemmed from, these very two capital cities. And so he makes mention of those. His message was for all in the land. But his message particularly was for those in positions of influence in the capitals. He begins with a piece about Samaria, yet most of the book is about the south part, about Judah. By the time Micah wrote this message, Samaria had already fallen, and yet it served as an example to Jerusalem and to the nation of Judah at large. And men and women, the message is still the same. An outward show of religious activity doesn't satisfy God if it is not matched with true love and concern for all of his word. You see, we read of what the Saviour said. A very telling verse or two in Matthew chapter 7, 
Verse 21, he said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils in thy name, done many wonderful works. What are that? What is that? That's just the externals. Because the next verse is the telling verse. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. God's not interested in the external. It's the heart. May God forbid that we would worship God with the lips outward. Just giving lip service. Many today do it. They tick the box. I've been to the house of God of Sunday morning. That's me for the rest of the week. And their worship's not from the heart. That's the day Micah lived in. In which call, God called him to minister and prophesy of his judgment. That is the thought that I want to close with. Because Micah begins his prophecy, his prophetic ministry, by looking back to the first messages he had received from God. Where does judgment begin? You see, here was was before the northern kingdom had been wiped out, before Samaria had been taken. He's unable to look behind the human actors on that political scene. They were only doing what God had permitted them to do. They're just puppets in God's hands. I want you ever to think, men and women, that politics in this land is the answer for Ulster. It never will be. I don't care what party it is. It will never be the answer. And Micah is able to look behind it all. And he has been shown how the hand of God in judgment would work. He's concerned to emphasize the reality of God's judgment. Both on the nations as well as on his own people. And his aim throughout it all is to disturb the complacency that many had of their relationship with God when in reality they were living as rebels against the Lord. His message begins with a summons, verse 2. Hear, all ye people. It's repeated in verse chapter 3, verse 1. He said, Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel. You'll find it again in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. Hear. He is, as it were, Causing all parties concerned to pay attention. I, I, I get in my own mind's eye. This might be far out. But I get in my own mind's eye. The courtroom. No way you've ever, any of you have ever been in the courtroom. Or the unfortunate place of having to be in the courtroom. But there is a, 
there's a stillness. There's a certain solemnity when the judge comes in. And of course there's the clerk. And the clerk, he makes sure that the right boys are in the place when the case comes up. And I can just picture Micah here, and he's giving attention. He's seeking that all, all the parties concerned give attention to the actions of the sovereign Lord, who's the judge of all the earth. He says, hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth. It's important how we hear the word of the Lord. You know, dear people, there's a hearing that is not hearing at all. Maybe your wife could identify with that. She told you to do something. And you never heard it. Well, you heard it, but you didn't do it. That's, that's more like it. Didn't I tell you to do that? Right. So there's a hearing, and there's not really a hearing. These are not married yet, that's what happens. <laughs> Luke chapter 8, verse 18. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. For whosoever hath to him shall be given. Whosoever hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he seemeth to have. The Lord says, take heed, therefore, how ye hear. I trust we're not looking around the congregation and seeing how other people are listening. And you take heed, how we hear. How we hear. Whether in the back seat or the front seat. You consider what Micah is teaching here. Verse 2. He's teaching God as Lord over all. Hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. All the earth are his rightful subjects. He's the great creator. The subjects that ought to listen to him and obey him. The same truth that the psalmist conveys in Psalm 41 and the words of verse 1 where he says in that psalm hear this all ye people give ear all ye inhabitants of the world you see Israel's God is not just a local deity as was the case among the heathen and the pagans he's one whose sway extends to every individual whether or not they acknowledge or they are prepared to acknowledge him or not, it makes no odds. That's why Micah says, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. Here's a message not only for Jerusalem and Judah. God is Lord over all. He's teaching also the truth that God is not one who's distant. Need a warning to those who would think he is. They may call into question the reality of his knowledge or his desire to intervene in judgment. Well, you look at how Micah describes him here. He says, Hear all ye people, hearken worth all ye that are therein is, and 
let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. The Lord from his holy temple. That's his heavenly dwelling place. If you turn over to Habakkuk chapter 2, a couple of books over, verse 20, it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's contrasting the idols. In the verses previous to that, verse 18, What profiteth the graven image? that the maker thereof hath graven it. But, but the Lord, you say, is the true God. He is in his holy temple. The psalmist could say the same, Psalm 11, and uh, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelights try the children of men. You see, he observes what people are doing. And from there, he serves notice that in his perfect time, he will intervene decisively in the affairs of the earth. He's one who dwells in his holy temple. He brings out the summons. The summons is issued so that he may witness against them. Verse 2. And while the rest of the chapter describes judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem, yet the nations at large are to consider this. For their destiny is linked with that of Israel and of Judah, as can be seen throughout other verses throughout his book. They're interlinked. We can't divorce ourselves from what's going on in Israel because that's where the Lord's going to come back one day. These nations are therefore called to watch and to learn for this is what they too will face if they don't repent. It brings to mind, men and women, First Peter 4, verse 17. Verse 18, it says this, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. That's really what Meg is teaching. And he's beckoning, he's encouraging all the other nations to look and to watch and to learn because that's coming to them too. If they don't repent. And if judgment begins at the house of God, then are those who do not acknowledge the sovereign God going to be exempt? Men and women, we often, rightly so, pray for revival. But there's many misunderstood views about what revival is. Yes, there's a conversion of many people, but that's an outworking of it. That's not 
That's only one of the results of revival. Revival is reliving. And you can only revive something that's already alive. It begins with God's people. The outworking may have an impact on the ungodly, but it must begin at the house of God, if you like. It must begin at God's people. It must begin in my heart. And what follows in verse 3 and 4 is the impending arrival of God in judgment using pictures to betray it. Lord is coming from his temple. You'll notice what it says in verse 3. He's coming down. Behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. In other words, his actions are going to be based on close examination of the evidence. And you know, we've come across that before. It's the same very thought as what we read about the Lord coming to examine the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 18 verse 21 says this, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. The same you will read about the Tower of Babel. God comes down and sees what they are at and puts confusion of language among them. He's come down. And you'll notice he comes down. The first place he comes into contact with are the tops of the mountains. Verse 3. The ironic thing about that is, the interesting thing is, that the high places were often used as places of security against the enemy. That's why the fortresses were built upon them. That's why the uh, safe cities, the refuge, cities of refuge, were built always on a hill so that the one who took a life, uh, not deliberately, could see it and could run to it and be safe. Now there's a reversal of human expectations. For they're the first to experience God's presence and judgment. And that shouldn't be surprising to us because we often read how many times of the high places in scriptures, particularly in these books beforehand. And that is where the sites were cleared for the pagan worship, for the worship of Baal. It was in the high places, the groves. The Lord treads on them. And they're destroyed. And it shows the impotency of those man-made gods. When the Lord comes in judgment, it affects all the earth from the highest mountains to the lowest valleys. Verse 4, the mountains shall be molten under him. The valleys shall be cleft as was before the fire and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. The picture is of the mountains melting beneath them just like wax. The valleys cleaving in two like a torrent running down a slope. And we have all heard of the effect of burst dams and great volumes of water in recent days and how it carries all before it. So it will be that nothing will escape the effect of the Lord's presence and judgment. And the reality of all of this will be on that great and that final day that Peter speaks about. 
1 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter, I should say, chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The world, men and women, is not going to be flooded because of the ice caps melting. I've said to you that before. It's going to be burned up. But hear me. While the reality will be on the final day of the Lord. It is anticipated in every intervention of God in the affairs of man prior to that final day. Is anticipated. Make, a, make sure that they understand a spiritually complacent people. He makes sure they understood that it was them he was talking about, not some other nation. It was them. Because he says, for the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. Men and women, it guards us against saying or thinking that the word was for someone else. That was a good word the preacher brought this morning. That was a good word for souls. words for me you know the Lord warned against that he says in Luke chapter 13 with this I finish there were present at the season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices Jesus answering said unto them suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things I tell you nay but except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent. You see, he's not interested in them thinking about someone else up the road. The word was for them. Except ye repent. You shall likewise perish. Judgment begins at the house of God. Micah, God's servant, is speaking to Jerusalem, the very nation of God. It's you I'm speaking to. I trust and pray that we would have a listening ear. I've already touched on that. How do we hear the word of the Lord? This wasn't the word of a man. It's the word of the Lord. That's why we need to prepare our hearts as we read the word or as we come to hear it preached. It might be a word to our own souls. The Lord blesses truth to our hearts tonight.